Hello, and welcome to Bridgeford Trust Company's Delivering Direction and Control podcast series. Our podcast series is designed to educate, challenge, and inspire listeners while keeping you updated on developments regarding modern trust law and powerful planning opportunities available, all in an effort to deliver direction and control to clients and their advisors. Hello, everybody. This is David Warren, uh, chairman of Bridgeford Trust Company, co-founder uh, here uh, with another interesting installment of our podcast series. Um, you know, over the, the years, we, we've really been humbled. I say this as we begin every every session, but it's really amazing the amount of talent that we've been able to attract and, and thought leaders and and, and have uh, really scintillating conversations about uh, what I always say, big ideas. And uh, Stephen Zieger, who's with me today, is one of these individuals. Um, I met met Stephen one time ago in New York City. We had a common friend who put us together for lunch. And uh, immediately I was impressed because of the way he sort of approaches, well, globally, I guess, wealth management, but in particular, his passion around insurance planning and the way he approaches it, which is refreshing. And I will describe why in a moment. Um, but before I talk about that, I'll give a little bit of background on Steve. Um, he has a very impressive background. He graduated um, State University of New York in Albany uh, with a BS in business and then went on to receive an advanced degree, which I want to talk about, uh, Steve, um, from, from Wharton uh, School of Business. Um, he works with and, and has represented families from really all over the, the world, or right now all over the country in particular. I meant to say, you know, he definitely has an expertise in PPLI, which is an area that I uh, am particularly interested in as well, because we hold a lot of it at Bridgeford, and I think in the right circumstances, it's a, it's a tremendous planning tool. Um, but back to what it is about Steve that really sort of has stuck out with me um, since I met him and in our, our, our subsequent conversations is that he talks about insurance in the context of transparency and integrity uh, and talks about uh, aspects of insurance um, that is uh, conflict-free. And that conflict-free aspect of it really resonates with us at Bridgeford because that's very much why and how we started Bridgeford and to avoid the conflicts of interest that existed in the trust space, uh, which is why we don't manage money and do anything other than focus on um, in, uh, trust work. And, and the reason why I raise that is that really has become a theme in our podcast with various people that we've inter- interviewed uh, from across the country and around the world, where there there is not only just a theme in the people we're interviewing, but I think that's a, a theme that's developing in our industry, Steve. And I think it's a very strong development where people like you with insurance expertise and us in the trust space and the insurance, um, or rather investment managers, are all realizing that, you know, large families and, and the, the market is just not going to tolerate conflict anymore. So with that, Steve, welcome. Uh, I'm anxious for you to talk a little bit about how and you got to that point and, and how you incorporate that into your practice. But first, I'll let you say hello. And, and please tell me what, what brought you into the wealth management and uh, insurance space in, in particular. Sure. And David, thank you for having me on the podcast today. I'm excited to uh, spend a, an hour with you. Um, so I, I, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur and I decided to enter the insurance business because the barriers to entry were were kind of simple, you know, a, a few licenses. And I quickly discovered that many insurance people or the entire industry had a, had a poor um, reputation, you know, almost like a used car salesperson. And I noticed that RIAs 
didn't have that reputational problem. And I think a lot of it boiled down to the fact that RAs use independent research, right? RAs go to Morningstar, they go to Value Line, they go to Ibbotson. And it keeps them all honest, right? <laughs> them all honest. And, and it's, you don't, you don't have to be a great salesperson because the data really does right. speaking for you. So over time, I started using four independent third parties that provide you know, pricing and performance research for life insurance, the same way that, life, that Morningstar provides pricing and performance research for investments. And this was backed up in a, a court case. Uh, there was a case called Cochrane versus Key Bank, which was settled in the Indiana appellate courts. It was the first time that a life insurance policy owned by an islet was subject to the Uniform Prudent Investor Act. And uh, we can send you a copy of the article we wrote on the case in Trust in the States magazine. But essentially, Cochrane has $8 million of life insurance. He's told by his agent that the death benefit and the cash value could be impacted by performance in the stock market. And Grant or Cochran commented that he could no longer afford to pay the premium for the policy, and he didn't want his legacy subject to the stock market. And they moved to a $2.5 million paid-up policy that no longer required any premium. And KeyBank had gone to an independent third party that had no financial stake in the outcome. They interviewed Grantor Cochran, they interviewed the trustees at KeyBank Trust Company, and they opined that this was the transaction that made the most sense for Cochran, this $2.5 million contract. And even though he was only 53 years old and he had a life expectancy of 30 years, he died six months later. And the family had a $5.5 million loss because they went to an independent third party who had no financial stake in the outcome. Um, KeyBank prevailed. And that's really what gave, you know, a great turbocharge to this independent research model. And if you'd like, I can talk a little bit so, about. So let me jump in. You said it before. So your 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 the argument you're making is that the prudent investor rule, the prudent used to be prudent man rule, I guess, when I was back in law school. You're saying because of that case that that now that now has proliferated in in the, in the insurance space as well. Well, unfortunately, it hasn't proliferated in the insurance industry. That that's well. what you wanted to. <laughs> that's what you're trying to do with yeah, your presentation. That's what we're trying to do. And, you know, in uh, uh, several years ago, New York State implemented the first client's best interest regulation for life insurance. It's called right. Regulation 187. Yeah. Yep. Fiduciary language, care, skill, prudence, and diligence of a prudent person. Yet agents sued to overturn the regulation. So, and it wasn't until October of 2022 that the New York State Court of Appeals constitutionally affirmed that. Uh, regulation. So now we have A, the lawsuit that that's in favor of going to an independent third party, B, the New York State client's best interest regulation. And then there's further guidance from FINRA, from the Office of the Controller of the Currency, from uh, the Uniform Prudent Investor Act, from the CFP board that all relate to really client's best interest or a fiduciary approach to life insurance, depending upon which hat the advisor is wearing. So, talk, so talk to me about that. I mean, I think that, in your view, why, why is all that so groundbreaking? A and B, 
you know, is are, are we talking about a, a definable standard here or standard of care, I guess, um, which is really what I'm saying is can can you use those different sources to argue a malpractice to say against a, an insurance person who isn't uh, transparent, conflict free, and, and it's determined clearly that they weren't acting in the best interest um, as a fiduciary? So I don't I think there's such a patchwork of laws, rules, acts, and regulations that it, it is difficult to sue the insurance person because they can say, hey, the FINRA reg doesn't apply to me because I'm not securities licensed or someone else says, well, I'm not a CFP, so I don't need to disclose costs. Um, But I think think we can piece together on this podcast how we can make the insurance world a better place for the consumer um, and, and a better place for their fiduciary advisors. And that's really to learn about these clients' best interest regulations from the fiduciary point of view. And then one day the fiduciary will demand of the insurance world, this is, this is the information we want to see, and that information will lead to a better outcome for our clients. So, no, I love that. I love that. And, and I want to get into more detail and, and kind of have you pick up again uh, where I guess the date you mentioned and, and, and want to piece the patchwork together for the audience, because I think it's it's so interesting that uh, we're I mean, again, we're sort of inculcating or infusing more of an, an ethical standard in the insurance world. And as you say, it's you know, I've always been a big believer in insurance I mean, when I practice law. Um, but you're right. The insurance industry, along with lawyers, too, I mean, they, they suffer from the presumption, right, that that, uh, you know, uh, nefarious things sometimes happen. Um, so from your position, let, let me just I didn't mention you, you are um, uh, the managing director of wealth management at KB financial talk a little bit about that company your role there and how you're using that as a platform really to to tell a new story in terms of how insurance works or should work sure so so kb is a a truly interesting organization there's a a family office you know where we pay bills and manage jets and manage yachts and handle the estate planning for you know wealthy individuals we have an M&A firm that really only works on M&A de- We're not deal junkies, but we work on M&A deals that we can make more tax efficient, income tax wise and estate tax wise. And then I sit over in the wealth management area, speaking to attorneys and accountants and RAs and trustees. And, and they love this independent research model, unfortunately, of the you know several hundred thousand insurance agents in the United States. You know, less than a dozen really speak about this model. And what I do is I help you know bring in new business to the firm when it makes sense into any of those silos. But but my you know my passion and my why is to really change the insurance business and that same reputation that the attorney, the accountant, the RA, the trustee has. That's why we're together today. No, and I love the passion around it. I mean, in many ways, um, that's where I see us as kindred spirits. I and mean, that's very much why we launched Bridgeford in the trust space. And the the paradigm we were fighting against there and, and still um, fighting against is, you know, the the bundling approach of the investment management function and the trustee function and private banking function, in some cases, even insurance that culminates into this, you know, consistently, uh, in my opinion, abhorrent conflict of interest for the family at the end of the day, because fees are hidden and, and, and you don't know why private bankers pushing the trust company and pushing a particular type of investment. And as you well know, Stephen, it's, it's a similar problem, right? And I think you're 
coming to the market um, as a bit of a disruptor um, to solve that very problem in the insurance space in much the same way companies like Bridgeford popped up to address uh, the same problem in the trust industry. So so let's get into, if I could take you back to where you started. So, so you talked to us about the case. You talked to us about something that happened in 2023. Let's go into more detail and let's let's piece together the patchwork for us and, and leading us to sort of the what, your why, as you said a moment ago. So please take us through some of that. Well, so let's let's talk about the fees and the costs that you just alluded to a few minutes ago. And let's talk about you know, life insurance costs because there's something that you know are hardly ever disclosed. And when they are disclosed, it's sort of a, a shrug of the shoulders, right? If you know, if I ask people, you know, what is your mortgage cost? Everyone knows oh, it's two point one nine percent. And if I ask them, you know, how much Vanguard charges you for to invest your money, they'll say, well, in this particular fund, it's five basis points. And everyone debates their RIA whether they should be charged sixty basis points or fifty five or whatever. And people buy insurance and they never look at those costs. Either the agent doesn't know how to disclose them or the insurance company won't disclose them. But let's just take a quick look at an example because it's incredibly dramatic. So let's pretend we have a 50-year-old male. They want to buy $10 million of insurance. It doesn't matter what type. They think the insurance company can earn 5.5% on their money. Well, for that $10 million contract, the average insurance company is going to charge $6 million in cost of insurance charges, policy expenses, premium loads, and perhaps cash value-based wrap fees if it's a variable product. But those costs vary by 40% off the mean, which means there's some insurance company that's going to charge $2.4 million more than $6 million, and there's some insurance company that's going to charge $2.4 million less than the $6 million. So a total swing of $4.8 million, but no one's looking at those costs. So by using the independent research that we utilize in our practice, we're able to immediately show someone a great news. You're, you're the one who's underpaying compared to everyone else, or the research is able to show that the person is overspending by those millions of dollars. And we can show the person how to capture those millions of dollars back in their own pocket or back in, you know, their family's trust. Uh, no, I, I, along that along that line, I, that's excellent. Along the lines of analyzing fees and uncovering what is intentionally obfuscated, in my opinion, and it's also the same case in traditional bank trust departments too. I think it's, there's an intentional attempt to to make it hard to figure out what the actual fees are. How are you factoring taxes there? And I know maybe it's, it's more germane in the PPLI space relative to the insurance premium tax. But to, in my experience, a lot of folks and families and even some advisors don't even know what that is. And, and that's compelling, too, just to, you know, drop the trust in the correct trust jurisdiction that has a, a favorable premium tax. So how is that? Is that part of your analysis as well? And what, what's your thoughts on that? So usually in the, in the conventional insurance market, the the costs are the same in all of the 50 states. Really, there's although there might be a product that's available in a certain state that's not available in another state, usually because the premiums are so much smaller than PPLI, the amount of savings for a DAC tax, just it, it doesn't really go back to the consumer. Um, 
But of course, we work with the attorney and the accountant and the RA and the trust company to make sure that the product is owned correctly um, inside of a trust, outside the taxable estate, what have you. Yeah, no, we're, we're seeing a big one um, primarily in the PPLI space where, you know, even if a trust isn't necessarily that the structure because sometimes a trust isn't needed or they're using an LLC, in, in a, for example, in South Dakota, uh, to establish nexus to take advantage of the low premium tax. But again, that's, that's more particular or specific to uh, PPLI. Okay, so we talked about fees. You 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 illuminate your families and your clients and, and your prospects around fees. So where where else do you go with with trying to create more transparency um, in your in your practice? So I think the next area is I don't know if it's exactly transparency, but it's. Uh, Monte Carlo simulations for life insurance. And define that for our, I, I know what that, you know, of course, but not when, when you say Monte Carlo, define that because that's a pretty compelling objective analysis. Right. So when we look at a life insurance illustration or when any consumer or their advisor is looking at a life insurance illustration, it's a static you know, 6% return every year for the next 30 years. But, but the returns actually won't be 6%. A year for the next 30 years, they're going to have, you know, they're going to have vagaries or volatility. So what we're able to do with a Monte Carlo simulation is we're able to run 1000 or more permutations and combinations of past history that equal 6%, but in, but in a, a different order than 66666, right? So it's almost a matter of, I, I use a little joke, you know, have you ever heard the story of the actuary he drowned while trying to cross a river that had an average depth of half an inch. <laughs> well, when, it's kind of comical, but when you think about it, it was an eighth of an inch, an eighth of an inch, an eighth of an inch, 500 feet. And, and it's the same thing with a life insurance illustration has those vagaries also. So we're able to, you know, we're able to see illustrations that are run to age 100 at a conservative 6% rate of return. Yet when we run a Monte Carlo simulation, we might see that policy only reaches age 100 12% of the time. And the consumer can't tell that looking at the illustration, but they can tell it when we utilize a Monte Carlo simulation. And what does that do for them? What, what, what is it that's enlightening for that? So I think it's a matter of helping their advisor, whether it's another insurance agent or whether the client comes back to us and says our insurance agent doesn't understand how to fix the problem, it's really upfront trying to make some changes to the illustration so that we, when we run it, it matches the consumer's ideas about what are the odds that it should succeed. Mr. John, are you comfortable spending $500,000 a year in premium for a 50% chance that your family's going to get that death benefit? Of course, most people would say, no way. But when we can get that number in the high 90s, people become comfortable. So it's a matter of rejiggering the illustration or moving to another product or another concept so we can reach those the goal that the person wants and then run another Monte Carlo simulation and say, you know, we've, in, we've improved your odds from 12% to 96%. And at that point, everyone becomes more satisfied and comfortable. Got it. Understood. No, I mean, it's compelling. And it, again, it removes, well, I guess I should say, it infuses more of a, of, a, of an objective sort of 
understanding of how that policy is supposed to work. Okay, so where else are you focusing on when you're when you're meeting with your families and getting them to understand, you know, where you're trying to take them in this fiduciary standard? Um, it's really existing insurance that should be reviewed using independent third parties, or if there's proposed insurance, it should be reviewed by independent third parties who have no financial stake in the outcome. That's the mantra, and we just keep on repeating that. And slowly, 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 we're making a difference. But it really takes people like you to help communicate this to more and more fiduciaries so they hear the story, they sort of stick their toe in the pool and say, okay, let's see how this is different. And then they really have an incredible aha moment the first time they see that independence, that transparency. Uh, that benchmarking a life insurance policy the same way they benchmark their investment portfolio. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so talk to me about then if you, you run the analysis, you know, you show them the fees and, and you, you place a more of a fiduciary review over it. So then what, if you determine that it, you know, it's, it's, well, you determine all the things that are wrong with the policy, then, then how do you have that conversation, particularly with a with somebody who already has an insurance agent in place, right? I mean, that can become tricky. And the reason why I ask that question is because at Bridgeford, uh, we, as you know, we hold a lot of insurance, uh, not just PPLI, but all kinds of insurance and various policies. And sadly, sometimes the insurance agents just sort of disappear. Um, it could be a function of the payouts and whatever. So there's there's nobody really around to ensure that these policies are performing correctly and or not there's no financial incentive to do so other than to maybe get the client to buy a brand new policy. And, and often the insurance agents just keep just move on to the next. And and I'm not intention intending to sound so pejorative, but I think that's one of the problems. So you have all these orphan policies that nobody knows are underperforming and the fees are too high and, and everything that you just went through. So so take me through that. I mean how do how do you how do you have that conversation um, without you know getting yourself in a fist fight at a country club somewhere because you're, what you're saying is is kind of controversial a little bit and and really is calling out the industry and in some cases could be individual agents right so ta- how do you, how do you handle that? Sure. So sometimes the agent has disappeared. Either they became an RA and they no longer have an insurance license, or they sold the policy and they want to you know, run out of town as quickly as possible. So then we have the ones where the agent is still involved. And sometimes the agent um, sees the research and says, "Wow, this is a, this is a better way of doing business. You know, let me let me look into this." And sometimes they they dig their heels in the sand, and the advisor and the grantor they begin to see that it, it's not transparent on one side of the equation, and they slowly gravitate uh, and they call us. Uh, but you know, this is a very interesting point uh, since you do have those orphan policies, it would be really interesting if you redacted the names from those Inforce illustrations and we utilized the independent research. And then we had a second follow-up podcast where you could be the interviewer and you could tell the stories of where you had that aha moment where you saw how you could save a family um, a great deal of money or protect them from a financial failure. Yeah. Which raises a whole other question, and you and I have talked about this. You know, um, 
what is the duty on the part of, uh, I guess it's more of a rhetorical question at first, but the presumption I will say is that there is a duty on the part of, on a part of any trustee, but in, in, in particular corporate trustee, to really make sure these policies are performing just as they would have an obligation, right, to make sure that um, everything isn't in Bitcoin, uh, you know, in the investment portfolio. A similar concern, I would imagine, and similarly dramatic in terms of a, a bad outcome. So, um, and then there's this idea of a directed trust um, in South Dakota and in other top tier jurisdictions. And the argument's been made, and in some cases, these jurisdictions have outright codified the fact that a, a corporate trustee, in a in a in a directed trust structure, uh, does not have a fiduciary duty. That that duty really resides with the investment committee, um, which is, is, is as you know, Steve, part of how the directed trust works. And so it isn't it isn't Bridgeford that needs to pull these policies. It's got to be the rich. If wherever wherever if if, it, if there's a failure, the fiduciary obligation was at the investment committee level and not at the trust company level. And and that's left Bridgeford sometimes scratching our head because I think that. You know, and I definitely want you to comment on that and, and how and what you've seen in the industry in, in, in terms of how, you know, what, what you hear in that regard. But I've told you what we scratch our head because we say, well, all right, just because maybe we, we can't be sued for a failure um, doesn't mean we shouldn't care. You know, so and it also doesn't mean we, we don't we doesn't mean we can't do it on our own motion just because it's good practice. So talk to me about that, because the trust, trust industry has changed a bit to create some protections for trustees in, in this space in particular. So what, what's, what's your thought on that? I think it's I think it's just not, you know, I think it's just natural to say to someone, regardless of whether you have a fiduciary obligation to review the policy or not. You know, these are clients, the clients become friends, and we just sort of do the right thing, um, even if we're not required to by by law. So, you know, this morning, uh, someone sent me a policy. It was written 20 years ago. Uh, we're not exactly sure of the health of the insured. There was a, there were a $95 million death benefit. And, you know, quickly looking at the research, we can see that there's $15 million of costs that were never looked at, right? So imagine saying to a, I mean, this sounds even better. It's one thing to go to a client and say, hey, we have an obligation to do this, so we did this for you. And it's another thing to say, just out of the goodness of our hearts, because we care about you as a client and as a family, we, we looked into this independent research for you and we found you $15 million. So how do we want to... What do we want to do with that $15 million? You can pay $15 million less premium, present value adjusted. You can have $15 million more cash value, present value adjusted. You can have $15 million more death benefit, present value adjusted. That, that just leads to the most amazing goodwill. Or if the research comes out and says the policy is a five-star rated policy, now you're going to be able to protect the client if an, if an unscrupulous insurance agent comes along five years from now, your client can waive an independent, a patented independent research report in, in, the, in that agent's face and say, hey, this is a five-star policy. I went to an independent provider of you know, objective research. I think you're trying to pull the wool over my eyes here. So I think it's just a matter of it's the right thing to do regardless of what the law says. 
Well, I, I really love the way you say that. I mean, I've gone through your presentation and, and we're going to, uh, or the slideshow that you put together for a, a pretty prolific uh, webinar that you that you have went, uh, that it was a couple weeks ago or maybe last week that you did just on this topic. And, um, you know, I, I like the way it's, you, you jump out where you say, you know, what you've already described in New York that kind of changed the paradigm, you think that well, there's an ethical reason why these rules need to apply in every state. And, and, and again, I'm referring to this best interest and what's in the best interest of the client, which, which is so, it's so laughable to me that we're in 2023 and, and we actually have to say that out loud that we're supposed to be in handling insurance in the best interest of the client. Like the fact that the fact that that isn't, and hasn't been presumed for the last hundred years in this country is kind of mind blowing, but I, uh, I guess, I'm, I guess you would agree with that. Um, but let's transition to some other data points that, that you referenced that, that point out um, uh, this duty or, you know, as, we, as you said earlier, the patchwork. And I'm, I'm specifically looking at uh, the NAIC, some illustration model regulations. Can you, can you give us some high-level comments on that and how that supports your thesis? So in, in 1995, the NAIC communicated that life insurance illustrations were misleading consumers. And then 20 years later, the NAIC communicated that there were illustrations that used the same index or crediting rate, yet they showed different returns. And that means they're still misleading 20 years later. So it's almost like you alluded to a couple of minutes ago, is how could this not be client's best interest? already. And I sort of, sometimes I make a joke and I say, you know, imagine you walked into your doctor's office and the doctor said, Hey, David, you know, just so you know, I don't follow the Hippocratic oath about first do no harm. And you'd run out of that door really quickly. <laughs> that's but, a great, it's a great analogy. Yeah. Yeah. But in the life insurance business, other than in the state of New York, there's no obligation to act in a client's best interest. And that's really why I think ethically this applies in all 50 states. Right. So if I'm an attorney in Arizona and I have a client who has, you know, an insurance need or I need to do an insurance review, whatever it is, I should be placing the New York reg in front of the Arizona insurance agent saying, hey, can you follow these rules? Or I should find an insurance agent in New York and say, you know, you're required to work under this best interest framework. You know, here's your first Arizona client. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you about that. If you, if you have that, I've, that would be a solution I would follow too. Is you just go to the jurisdiction that has the has the statement, right, and has the has the standard. Well, let's transition to Finra because there's there's some some language there that also sort of makes your point and supports uh, supports this idea of that you there is an obligation to act in the best interest. Right. So so when when people so envision now that. You're an, you're an attorney, you're an accountant, you're an RIA, you're a trustee, and a client is making an insurance decision. How is that typically presented? It's typically the life insurance illustration is put in front of the client, but regulators have said that um, you know illustrations are you know, misleading. And when we talk about FINRA, FINRA said that it's, I think it's fundamentally inappropriate to compare life insurance illustrations side by side, but, but that's the standard of care today. So when people are looking at a life insurance illustration, they're comparing one versus the other side by side, but an illustration just shows you how the policy works, not what it's going to do. And a side-by-side -side comparison doesn't take into account risk. It doesn't look at costs. And what many insurance agents say to me is, 
hey, I'm, I'm presenting a general account product. I can present those side by side because it doesn't fall in the Finder's purview. But, you know, you're an attorney. Imagine that person in court and, and someone says to that individual. So when it's a variable product, it's you don't present them side by side because that's fundamentally inappropriate. But as soon as it's a non-variable, it suddenly becomes appropriate. No way. You're, you're applying a sort of a different lens to the same thing. So I, I, not to interrupt, I, I was thinking about that. I mean, I, before I got into the trust space, I did a fair amount of fiduciary litigation, which is why I think I, it's all of this resonates with me. And I mean, I could see the ability to, you know, cross-examine an agent or, or their compliance officer um, along these lines. And even though it's a patchwork, I mean, you know, you, you, what you just said that came out of Finware is also something similar coming out of the society of, Actuaries and their similar language about it coming out of the Department of Treasury. I mean, OCC. I mean, it, it's amazing. And then there's Uniform you know, Prudent Investor Act. And, and it takes me back to that scary word. And I, I wonder, you know, when and if these policies, well, I know there's lots of litigation on insurance. I was involved with some of that in Pennsylvania. But I mean, there's some compelling standards here. Right. And, and the, the transparent individual is the one who it's like you're, it's like you're Switzerland, right? You just attract more and more and more attention because you're the objective one. You're the one who's using an independent research model and everyone's comfortable with that when it comes to their investments. So it's natural that they are, they'll be comfortable with it when it comes to their you know, life insurance. Everyone benchmarks their investments. Why don't they benchmark their life insurance? There's so much logic here, but you know we're up against habits well i don't i certainly don't want to give away all the all, all the secret sauce to what it is that i think you've put together in this presentation because i, I keep using the word it's extremely compelling i i know that there are videos uh and a slide deck um which is very very interesting to go through all of this and and i really want to encourage our audience to to go to those hyperlinks uh and and to to watch the videos um they're uh, not only right on point but entertaining and and again i think becoming more and more essential for the industry to understand what's going on here um, but steve I, I think as we kind of come come to the end what were other aspects though big picture again without giving away too much of your, your special sauce i mean what else do you touch on when when do you think is you know really really important uh, when you're in a client meeting and and you're trying to get people to understand that there's a new there's a new paradigm here and this is this is what they need to be paying attention to so t- talk to me a little bit about that you know, I really think at this stage, it's sticking to the, you know, chapter one of in search of excellence, stick to the knitting and the sticking to the knitting is go to an independent third party, right? I think that's really, you know, when people listen to this podcast and they think about five years from now, what are they going to remember? If they can remember that one thing, we've, we'll make a dent and help more clients to have better outcomes. Well, those of you know, your friends here at Bridgeford support that message 100% because, as I said, it's uh, it's a consistent with our message. I, I just wrote a piece really on a similar point, not as detailed as the way you approach the insurance industry. But, you know, it, there's some developments in the trust world that aren't favorable with consolidation of big bank trust companies internationally that I think touches on or is reintroducing this conflict of interest that is in lack of transparency that those of us have fought so hard in the last 15 years to go against. So you and I are very much... Uh, 
as I said, aligned and, and speaking the same language, which as I've said already many times, I, it's why I, I, talking to you is very refreshing. I, I, I like the way you approach things from an objective perspective. And, and for our audience, again, I mean, Steve is the managing director uh, of wealth management at Kiwi Financial, um, as he indicated, a very special organization. And, and um, all of his contact information will be here in addition to the videos that, uh, that we mentioned. And, and I, I really appreciate, Steve, you taking the time to, to think through this. I think you absolutely are a thought leader. Um, I love the message and the story. And, and, and again, we want to help support and champion it. Uh, as much as we can because it's very consistent so with that steve is there anything else you'd like to uh like to mention or share with our audience uh first of all i wanted to thank you for um interviewing me today it's been great discussing this with you and it's amazing how you know this is something that i do every day yet you're so intimately familiar with this and so many other subjects that's really a breath of fresh air and i think that the last thing we should leave a listener with is three sort of rhetorical questions. And that is, you know, when I say to an attorney or an accountant or an RIA or a trustee that the people who we work with, they tell us that they were, you know, frustrated with the insurance business because there was a lack of transparency and, and there was a, a lack of, um, there, or there was a conflict of interest or they were uncomfortable referring business to someone who was not a fiduciary or did not work under a client's best interest framework. And lastly, they usually tell us that they were frustrated. They couldn't figure out which policy would lead to a better outcome. So I ask, even though this is a podcast and nobody can really answer over a podcast, which one resonates with you? And, and I think the answers to those questions really lead to this new fiduciary era for life insurance. I can believe there's great questions. That last one is if you were asking me, that's that's to me has always been the most confounding uh, it's a dramatic word but it's true i mean i've sat in lots of different insurance meetings with clients when i practice law then doing the trust company uh, when i jumped in the trust company space and there are times and i don't consider myself stupid but there are times that i, I you know it's 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 almost impossible to discern because the objective there's not objective data and, and the data points aren't comparable and i without even you know, I didn't realize it, why it was not clear to me until I listened to your presentation. That's why it wasn't clear because of probably on purpose, right? It was the wrong, it was the wrong type of data point analysis. So those are all three great, great questions. And, and again, I love what you're doing in the industry. So one final time, this is uh, Stephen Seeger, and he is a, a tremendous breath of fresh air. Thank you again for being with us. And, uh, and again, please look at all the information that will be attached uh, to his recording. Thank you again, Steve. Thank you, David. Have a great day. Thanks again for listening to Bridgeford Trust Company's Delivering Direction and Control podcast series. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to keep posted on when new episodes are added. And for more information, you can visit us online at bridgefordtrust.com.